Hello, you guys. <laughs> guess who it is? I want to let you guess. I want to let you guess. Okay, it's me. It's Kayla. I'm Kayla. It's been a while. I hope you've missed me. Like I've missed you. Welcome back to Black Drew Crime. Hi, you guys. It's Kayla. I hope you can like feel the smile that I have on my face through this damn microphone because it's, it's fucking huge and it's hurting my cheeks. I'm so happy to be back. It's been forever. I had like school stuff that I had to wrap up and driver's class that I needed to take because obviously I'm a horrible driver and I have like 14 negative points on my license. So. I had to take care of business, y'all. Thank you for tuning in. If you have been here before, welcome back. If you haven't, welcome front. No, maybe? Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. I'm just going to probably get right into the story after a couple of important things because the story is a little bit long and I want to like get into it. So here we go. Important thing. It's really only one thing. Guys, please rate and review us on Apple Music. It really helps a lot for some odd fucking reason. Um, Be as honest as you want to be. I'm not pressuring you to give me a five-star rating. Although, let's be real. Just kidding. Um, I want to earn the five-star rating. So just like be honest. But give me your feedback. I'm really open to it. And I just want to have fun with you guys. And like, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, do that for me if you give a fuck. If you don't have Apple Music, you can like and review us on Facebook as well, which is kind of crazy. I rarely get on that Facebook, I'm not going to lie, but I do have like my Instagram posts automatically go to Facebook, so you will get like the same news, the same communication that you need in both places, so you can check both. Um, The more people that hang out with us, you guys, the more attention these cases get, And the more fun we get to have together as a family that's never met each other. Okay, I'm ready to start. Are you? It was a normal Friday night in Kilgore, Texas, and the local high school was having a football game that basically the entire town showed up to. Looking forward to a fun-filled evening, no one could have imagined what horrifying events would take place over the next 24 hours. Join us. And by us, I mean me, as we discuss the horrible events of September 23rd, 1983, also known as the KFC murders. So I'm hoping most of you guys know what KFC stands for. It's Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's like a restaurant and they serve chicken. So on this particular night, Joey Johnson was scheduled as a cook and Miss Mary Tyler was the assistant manager who came in that night just to help close up. Um, And Miss Opie Hughes was a lovely woman. (laughs) She was working as well. Around 10.30 p.m., and like I said, you guys, they're supposed to be closing up around this time. Around 10.30 p.m., Kim, which is Mary's daughter, came looking for her mother. She saw her mother's car still there, 
but inside of the KFC, it was completely dark and the keys were in the door. So this kind of like made her feel queasy easy. Well, not easy. Queasy. Gross. Yeah. She fell off and she decided to walk inside. So she walked inside and she said she saw blood. She thought maybe someone had cut themselves cutting chicken or something like that, which it's possible, but I don't know exactly how much blood she saw. So yeah, she called her dad and then they called the police. So the experienced detective Danny Pirtle and Russ County investigator William Brown came onto the scene and immediately felt like something was really, really off. Something bad may have happened here. There was a trail of blood droppings leading back to the room where they kept the money. Cash receipts showed about $2,000 was also missing. It was looking more like a robbery gone bad, like by the moment. So the police dispatched into the area looking for the three missing KFC workers. The detective got a call to come back to the scene to speak with Lana Maxwell. Now, Lana Maxwell was the wife of a man named David Maxwell who hadn't come home that night. He was supposed to be going to the KFC. I'm going to say the KFC a lot because Kentucky Fried Chicken is too fucking long. You understand. He was supposed to just be going to the KFC to bring Joey, Joey Johnson, um, his bike back. Bike meaning motorcycle because they were cool. They now started to fear that there was a fourth victim out there somewhere missing too. Monty Landers was a freshman at Kilgore College and had just pledged at the same fraternity that one Joey and two David were in. And the three of them were actually going to go hang out and do frat boy things that night. So now the count was up to five. Five missing people and basically the police didn't start to panic, but they started to be like, okay, this is serious. We need to do something. So they were searching all fucking day and all fucking night and they didn't find anything. So they were at the scene, Detective Pirtle and Detective Brown, Investigator Brown. They were at the scene where they went missing and they got a call. And basically the call said that five missing people, the five missing people were found in a field near an oil rig thing. And it was 14 miles away from the KFC. Oil worker Arthur Warlick was the one that found the bodies. He said when he first got to the scene around 9 a.m., he was like, who the fuck left all these piles of trash out here? So, yeah, obviously he was pretty far away because he thought the bodies were just bags of trash. And he was actually super annoyed at first. And as he got closer, he realized it wasn't trash at all. It was actually people. So he just assumed the kids broke in. They were super drunk and they just passed out. So he started to literally speak and was like, hey, hey, you kids, y'all need to wake up now and get on home. You hear? That's a quote, by the way. Didn't tell you. My bad. He even thought they were doing some freaky sex thing, which is, <laughs> which was like literally in like an article. But as he got super close and super, super close, he noticed how quiet quiet it was. And he said there was like no birds, like there was just nothing. It was just completely, completely silent. And then he noticed that they weren't moving. 
Once he realized what was up, he started basically throwing up and he took the fuck off back to his truck. Hey, it rhymed. I'm not making light. This is really, really sad. So at this point, all of the victims are unfortunately dead. Four of them were found in a line on, the stu- on their stomachs and gunshot wounds to their heads. Two of them were found with their arms under their foreheads, kind of like if you were told to lay down on the ground, you would put your arm in front of you. So you're laying on your forearm to kind of like protect your forehead from the ground. And then the other two had scuff marks under their shoes, kind of showing that they attempted to get up and maybe flee after they noticed that the other two were being shot but unfortunately were shot as well in their heads. Opie Hughes, however, was found 120 feet away from the other victims back toward the entrance gate. She was found with a handful of her own hair in one hand, which is just, that's like one part that made my stomach kind of turn. Um, And the other hand was full of grass. They speculated that she must have started to run when the shooters started when the shooters started shooting people, but unfortunately was trapped by the barbed wire and just like didn't have a way to get out. David Maxwell was 20 years old and was working part-time to make its ends meet. He was a newlywed and was super happy with his new wife and they were expecting their first child when he passed away. Joey Johnson, who was also 20, was a sophomore at Kilgore College and was a super bright kid, they said. He was a football star, basketball star, baseball star. Basically, he did fucking everything. Um, The people closest to him said he was very passionate about life. He loved church and was just a great guy to be be around. Miss Opie Hughes, who was 39, was in a loving marriage to Jack Hughes. They had a daughter named Myra, who was only 16 at the time of her mother's death. And a little brother, well, she had a little brother named Merle, who was 11 years old. Monty Landers, who was 19, was loved as well and was really an energetic type of person. Monty's sister said that Monty would not watch scary movies, however. So his death bothered them even more because, unfortunately, he had to live the scary movie. And when she said that, like she said that in a clip that I saw of her and it just really made me sad because I'm like, imagine living a scary, like imagine, you know, like you avoid something to just have it be the number one cause of like why your life has ended. It must've been petrifying. It just made all of this shit even more real than it already was to me. She also said that he had a red Corvette that he loved. At 19, a red Corvette? Okay. Mary Tyler, she was 37 years old, and she was the last victim. She was married to Billy Tyler, and they had a daughter named Kim. Well, she had a daughter, I'm sorry, named Kim from a previous relationship. And Billy had a daughter named Denise, who loved Mary as her stepmother. So Detective Pirtle, who was actually assigned to be the head of the whole investigation, personally knew three of the victims. He knew Mary Tyler, Joey Johnson, and he said that he even watched David Maxwell grow up like personally. So this was understandably hard for him. And basically the whole 
Kilgore Police Department took this super serious and like super personal. They even got other agencies to start working with them as well. And the FBI later got involved because this was some serious shit, people. Like five people lost their lives in what felt like an instant. The Kilgore County Police Department made it their mission to find out what the hell happened. So they went to the scene and got a sample of every drop of blood, every possible trace of DNA, everything that they could. I mean, I'm guessing they did their best. You know what I'm saying? They started to look into who was in the restaurant right before it closed that night. And there was a woman that stood out. Her name was Star Powers. First of all, I love it. Star Powers, I fucking love the name. What are you what are you talking about? Star Powers. I hope she's reliable because I'm digging it. Okay. <laughs> so they interviewed her and she said she was sitting near the register when one of the cashier girls made a phone call. She said the girl was talking to her mom on the phone and said that there was too much money in the drawer and that someone forgot to make a deposit earlier in the day. Star Powers. I'm going to address her as Star Powers, just to let you know. Star Powers pointed out that she remembers thinking to herself, wow, you really shouldn't say that so loud and so close to closing time. So Star Powers obviously has brains and wits about her because that's common sense. Why would you be basically broadcasting to the world what you got going on in your mama's shop? Crazy town crazy town. During the autopsy, it was found that the five victims were killed with 11 shots that came for two from two, possibly three different guns, which suggests that there is at least two killers. They were each shot at least once in the back of the head. As they were taking the clothes off of Joey Johnson, the 20-year-old, a fingernail that was not his was found in his waist pant area, like where like his belt buckle thing is. The investigators immediately took on the thought, find the man with the missing fingernail and you got your man. Which was a quote. I wouldn't say that. Yeah. So basically they said, okay, we're going to look for someone that's missing a fingernail. Um, if I was anywhere near the scene, I would probably be missing a finger. I literally broke a nail today. So Who's to say? You know what I'm saying? 1983, it could have been me. So super early in the investigation, the detectives didn't really know if the $2,000 was the main reason for the killings. One theory came from a tip. Okay, get ready because it's a little crazy. So basically the tip said that a $20,000 meth recipe was stolen or like, I don't know, some way bamboozled from this really big meth kingpin and a guy named Jimmy Mankins Jr., who was actually the son of a Texas representative at the time and was also a drug dealer, (laughs) was going to try to like impress this big drug kingpin guy or make good with him or something, but he was going to get the recipe back. And word on the street was one of the victims or someone at the KFC that night had the recipe. And Mr. Jimmy Earl Mankins Jr. was going to get it. According to Motors and Murders, which is a show on investigation discovery, 
episode, wait, season four, episode eight. You're welcome. Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy borrowed a 38 caliber gun that same night, which is actually one of the types of the guns that was used to kill the five victims. They even considered his wife, Diana, to be a suspect as well, which really sucked because, I mean, they had to, they figured it was two people. Remember, they came up with that. So they kind of had to figure out who to fit in there. So not too far-fetched, far-fetched for me. Because the only physical evidence they really have is a fingernail found on Joey Johnson, they decided to take a look at his hands. And what do you know? One of his fingernails has been ripped off to the quick or the quip. I don't know what that word is, but it's been cut down to the meat. That's what I like to say. Detective Pirtle said that three weeks after the murders, he received a tip. So they had like this tip line set up, right? Because remember the FBI came in. I believe the state police came in. Like there was a bunch of people trying to work together to find out who the fuck killed all these people. So they had like a tip line. They, I think they got like what? Over 1,900 tips. And one of them was a tip about a man named Romeo Pinkerton, a man named Darnell Hartsfield, and a man named Elton Winston, who was supposed to have been their cousin or something because Romeo Pinkerton and Darnell Hartsfield were cousins. These guys were convicted drug dealers and they did like robberies and things like this, but they didn't usually do business in Kilgore. So why would their names come up or even mean anything when it came to these murders? Maybe we'll see. Darnell Hartsfield was born on December 11th, 1960. He was born in Tyler, Texas, I believe to John H. Hartsfield and Ro- Ruby May Pinkerton Hartsfield. That's how him and Romeo are cousins, through his mama. His parents raised their children in the church, and they taught them to tell the truth, work hard, and make good choices. Apparently, he had, like, at least eight sisters, which is insanity. So... I didn't find anything about brothers, so it was just, like, a bunch of girls. Holy crap. Holy crap. I'm one girl, and, like, I can't deal with myself. Okay. As a young kid, his family said he really loved the simple things in life. I mean, like, would go crazy over just his mom's pecan pie. Um, Pecan, pecan, I'm here to debate. He loved family cookouts reunions his family was very very close and the smell of dinner after a long day of school just made him go crazy so obviously he was a fucking foodie i'm here for it he also started working at a really young age he said he would have like multiple hustles going and he was super mature for like his young age but as he got older and hit puberty and as you know young boys find out what else their penis can do (laughs) during puberty he started rebelling he started staying out later he started hanging out with older teenagers which his parents knew would be no damn good and anybody could probably tell you that at that age 
um, around 13, he started going to clubs, which, sidebar, what fucking club? Who's letting this 13-year-old in? I know you can make, like, fakes and stuff, but, like, let's be real. I know he was mature, but, like, let's be real. He also started smoking weed at 13, which is insane, but it's not the first time I've heard of it. Despite all his parents' attempts to keep him on the right path, keep him in church, love in church, things of that nature, Hartsfield wasn't feeling any of that stuff at all. He was over that shit, basically. And he decided to drop out of school. He was going to John Tyler High School at the po- at that time. And once he hit 11th grade, he was like, I'm out this bitch. And I'm on the streets full time. He loved the street life. By the age of 22, he was really popping. I mean, he made a name for himself, kind of. He had a bunch of friends. Um, apparently, he had a bunch of money. Girls loved him for some reason. He had a steady supply of weed, which is probably the reason. He was just living his damn life. And he actually sounds super familiar <laughs> because he sounds like some people I used to date in my days. Anyways, <laughs> he started to rob. Well, he said he started to rob so he could afford his weed needs or his need for weed, whatever, feed his addiction. When I looked at Romeo Pinkerton's like backgrounds, you guys, I really didn't find shit because he wasn't really trying to talk to nobody about him. He wasn't very open about his past he wouldn't even talk about his family. So there goes that. The only thing that I really found out about this man, he was born on April 11th, 1958. And his hair was black. (laughs) He weighed 228 pounds and he is 61 years old right now. That's what I can give you on him. But we do know he was related or is related to Darnell Hartsfield. This other guy named Elton Winston, I honestly didn't even bother to really look him up to like try to find a record for him because I didn't want to get myself worked up and angry. And maybe you'll know why later. And if you want me to look him up, message me and tell me. But other than that, I don't even want to fucking see what the fuck he's up to right now. And that is hopefully no spoiler. (laughs) So, finding out what Star Powers had to say, hey girl, what's up? Your parents were awesome, by the way. Hopefully they were awesome and not murderers like some people that you may have had contact with. Okay, moving forward. So, they questioned her a little bit more. She ended up telling them that she was in line to order and there was a young African-American man standing behind her. And another black man, (laughs) yeah, African-American, not really feeling it too much, black, I'm comfortable with that. So another black man walked in and didn't, he didn't get in line, he just walked out stage left, or stage right, since it's opposite, I guess. So when they went to look these motherfuckers up, the detectives found out that Romeo Pinkerton's record showed that he was still locked up when the murders happened. And when it came to Darnell Hartsfield and Elton Winston, guess what their, please guess what their alibi was. Oh, wait. 
Okay, moving forward. Their alibi was they were dropping off prostitutes <laughs> back and forth from Tyler to Kilgore. That was their alibi. And apparently that was enough. Because investigators went back to Jimmy Mankins Jr. And they started focusing really heavy on him. So because they really didn't have a lot to go on when it came to Jimmy, as far as evidence, they had to let him walk free for a long while and let him live his life for a couple years until they had enough to convict or indict. Whatever fits your fancy. Now, this is worth pointing out. Right after these murders happened, there was another string of murders with at least a dozen victims in the East Texas area that all were said to be drug-related. Hmm. And apparently there was no idea who committed them. Hmm. So I may be covering those cases as well. We'll see in a future episode. Ooh, ooh. So this whole time, everyone is basically pinning it on Mankins Jr. They swear up and down he did it. Everyone in Texas knows he did it. They swear to God. And they were convinced it was his fingernail. Okay. Back then, we all know, 1983, 1987, 1989, 1991, around that time, DNA forensics sucked. It was not up to par. Technology wasn't there. Just was not happening yet. So they had a fingernail. They felt like it was Mankins. They couldn't really prove it at the time. They said that while he was walking the streets roaming free because they didn't have enough evidence to charge him, he was even bragging about the murders. Walking around town, saying that he was running his mouth, bragging about it, and threatening people saying that if they fucked with him, they would end up just like the five in Kilgore. Guys kind of get cocky at times. So he was running his mouth. He was having fun with it when he really shouldn't have been because it really wasn't helping his case. Opie's husband even spoke out and said that he had Mankins in his crosshairs, literally in the crosshairs of his scope, meaning the scope of his damn rifle, like his gun, ready to take that man's life. But his maker talked him out of it. Good for you. And good for your maker because you were, your ass would be splat in jail and he wouldn't have been because he would have been dead. But still, you know, come on. Ten years later, in 1993, when a new district attorney and a new forensic technique called striation testing, basically saying that people's fingernails are unique to them, like a fingerprint type of thing. The fingernail striation experts were able to find a match, and that match was Jimmy Mankins Jr. So in 1995, 1995, I was born in 1995, I can dig it. In 1995, Jimmy was waiting in jail, basically, for a count of armed robbery and five counts counts of capital murder can you imagine just sitting in jail 
being like, fuck. I probably didn't do this, but I'm probably also going to go down for this. Like, I couldn't even imagine the mindset, the mental state. Yikes. Okay. So the prosecutors worked really hard to make the case bulletproof. They had the fingernail person to testify, saying that, yes, this is 100% Jimmy's fingernail, no doubt about it. But it wasn't enough. So they had to try something else. So they went and decided to do a mitochondrial DNA test on the nail. And this was not being done, people. Like, this was not the reg. So it took months for it to happen. And finally, they received the call from the lab, and the fingernail did not match Jimmy Mankins Jr. So basically, there's their whole case. And after six months being in jail, awaiting trial, Facing life in prison, possibly death, Jimmy was released. He then spoke exclusively, like they usually do, to CBS 19, saying he was 100% innocent, and he resented even the question. Quote, the worst part was the six months in jail over there thinking about being put to death for something I didn't do. And more than likely, if it wasn't for the D- that DNA, I would have been on death row. That's the fucking truth, Mankins. That's the fucking truth. Mankins would later be arrested for an unrelated crime. <laughs> but he was right. The DNA was key to at least save him life in prison for killing five people. I didn't look up to see if he ended up going to prison for a long time for whatever he was arrested for after that. But I digress. After that whole thing with Jimmy Mankins fell apart, whatever his name is, I hope it's Jimmy because I'm not going back and I'm not editing this out. At this point in the investigation, the investigators were stuck as hell. And another 10 years would go by before anyone would know about the case, know more about the case. So that's 20 years down the pooper, no suspects, really, no conclusive evidence, really, no leads. Can you imagine the frustration? Don't imagine it. It's frustrating. So investigators decided they had to go back to square one. Around 2001-2002, Linda Tanner, who was an attorney from Austin, Texas, joined the squad, okay? And she was ready to go. As soon as she touched down, toes down, ready to go in the brown, you ain't heard nothing, you ain't seen a frown. Okay. Pull that out of my ass. Don't judge me. (laughs) Ms. Tanner and her team from Austin, working with Russ County DA Michael Jimerson, began holding special investigative grand juries. So basically they were really trying to just get this ball rolling, trying to subpoena everyone that they could, question everyone that they could, interview everyone that they could, find a way to basically get DNA from everyone that they could. So those those who came in to testify were offered items such as gum or drinks. And those items were later collected and tested for DNA that could have matched some of the DNA that they pulled off some of the items that they got from the crime scene. Even envelopes sent through the mail were tested. And Linda Tanner recalled one of 
I guess, the funny stories to her that happened with the DNA acquisitions. So, so she was quoted to have said, he told us he wasn't going to give us his blanket blank DNA. So I'm guessing he cussed her out. <laughs> and then he was so adamant about it. He wrote us a letter saying, I'm not giving you my DNA. and You can't make me give you my DNA. And then, of course, he licked the envelope and sent it to them and they got his DNA. So <laughs> just shows if you're going to be fucking difficult, be fucking smart about it and not an idiot. So after swabbing a white box that was used to hold cash register tapes and a napkin that was found behind the counter at KFC and the white box was actually found on the lower shelf behind or under the cash register. Yeah. So behind the counter under the cash register. That was found to have DNA on it. Foreign DNA. DNA not belonging to the victims. So naturally, they're like, whose DNA could it be? So Lorna and Linda set out to test this DNA, throw it into CODIS, and just see what they get. And guess what the fuck they got? They got two matches. And these two matches matched Darnell Hartsfield and his cousin, Romeo Pinkerton. For some reason, Family Guy just popped in my head right then. Moving on. These are the same men. I don't know if they sound familiar to to you. These are the same men that were mentioned in a tip three weeks after the murders. That's 20 years ago from the time that they find this stuff out, you guys. Crazy. There was even a flyer. There was even a fucking flyer. That was created with Romeo Pinkerton and Darnell Hartsfield's faces on them, labeling them as persons of interest. When examined closer, Hartsfield and Pinkerton did not have real alibis. Hartsfield wasn't really out with the prostitutes and stuff. Maybe he was trying to like sound, trying to seem cool, or like popping or like ha- that he got it like that because he was 22 at the time of the murders and he was feeling himself around that time so maybe that's what happened but he wasn't really doing that shit and Pinkerton like I said it was gonna come out that he was actually still in prison or I'm sorry he actually was out of prison despite them thinking that he was still in prison initially. So Homeboy was actually out of prison two days before the murders happened. So yeah, he doesn't have an alibi. (laughs) Forensic investigators also went back and were able to find a stain on Opie Hughes' pants. They turned out, the stain turned out to be sperm. And now investigators understood why Opie wasn't with all the other victims. Unfortunately, Miss Opie Hughes was raped by one of her killers. So the investigators started talking to Darnell. Obviously, they had a conversation with him, and he basically denied everything. He denied ever being at the KFC. He denied knowing where it was. He just denied everything. So when he was in front of a Rusk County grand jury, you would expect that he would tell the truth, right? Well, wrong. 
in this case. I mean, it depends on where you stand on the when it comes to this case, but yeah, he stuck to his story saying that he was not there, but obviously the physical ev- evidence says otherwise. So that's what the prosecution brought up. They clearly showed that because of the evidence that they found at the KFC restaurant, he was without a doubt there despite what he's trying to sell to you now so because of this lie because of this falsehood that he's selling on the stand during this grand jury trial the prosecution miss linda tanner decides to charge this man with aggravated perjury because he lied about not being at the kfc (laughs) And guess what? For this charge, he was facing life in prison. So I don't know where Kilgore, Texas is exactly, but I'll tell you what else. If they have a vendetta or like if they're coming for you, bitch, they're coming for you hard. They're not playing no games with you. They're not trying to make you feel like, oh, oh, I'm trying to, you know, do what's best for you. No, they're coming for your fucking neck. Which they should in this case. You know what I'm saying? Brutal murders and all. So he's facing life for lying on the stand, which is fucked. And on November 10th, 2004, they charged him with it. On July 30th, 2005, remember Romeo Pinkerton? Yeah, homeboy. He was arrested in Tyler, Texas on charges of burglarizing Griffin Elementary School. It's like, why are you breaking into what? Do you know anything about elementary schools? They are funded like schools. Public schools are funded by the government. The government does not care about education. Therefore, elementary schools are poor. Why would you break into an elementary school unless you're a fucking pedophile? I do not know. I don't want to get into that. Thank God he's behind bars. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) So, yeah, he got arrested for that and also evading arrest, which is not a surprise. And he was convicted for all of that in 2006. So in 2004 at Hartsfield's perjury trial, a lot of info that wasn't necessarily known before came out in this trial. And I found out all this information, you guys, from a book that was actually written by Jackie Hilburn Simmons and Kenneth Dean. And they went and did a lot of research and talked to family members and things of that nature about the case and found out a lot of behind the scenes information about the trials and what went on and what was said. So I'm basing all this information off that. You should really go check it out. It's available on Kindle Books, Amazon. Yeah, stuff like that. This is not an ad. (laughs) So yeah, a lot of information came out hold on to your titties or your junk. So Hartsfield's defense challenged the issues basically right off the bat in the case. So we didn't go over this before, but there were a lot of issues regarding mm, the integrity of the investigation. And Basically, what that means is how reliable it was, like how safe, how protected it was from being contaminated. 
The information Pirtle, which is Detective Pirtle, testified to in one of the grand jury hearings, said that the rolls of crime scene footage, like there was pictures that were taken and stuff, had been destroyed. And issues with assigning a lead detective at first, basically threw the whole investigation off into a course that it could never recover from. In one place I saw, in the book I saw, that it was three months so they went without a lead detective being like a sign. But then I saw in another place in the book that it was only three weeks. So I'm not really sure. But either way, it caused like a big disconnect in how the evidence was stored, how information was communicated, how everyone communicated with each other. It was just a hot ass mess. And then basically we were dealing with a bunch of guys and different government agencies basically thinking that one's better than the other. Or they hate one more than the other. Yeah, you're going to deal with some of this bullshit. But Miss Linda Tanner, my girl, brought out a key witness, nay, a victim, that would open everyone's eyes to who Darnell Hartsfield really was. A woman named Beverly Uzel, a former convenience store worker in the Tyler, Texas area, testified that two days after the murders, Hartsfield pulled a gun on her, okay? She was working one night, and, like, he came in there and basically robbed her of $300 in the cash register. And this was, what, two, two days after the murder? And then three days after the murder, this man was arrested, and I think he was put in jail for this crime. So it's like... Robbing people and robbing places of business is not out of his character. It's not something that should shock anybody when it comes to Darnell Hartsfield. According to more information that came out at the trial of Darnell, Hartsfield and Pinkerton were in the store when they overheard the cashier talking about the money in the safe, which was corroborated by my girl, Miss Star Powers. <laughs> oh, those name is Star Jones. I love that name too. But Miss Star Powers, because she said at least one of them was standing directly behind her. And kind of hard to, you know, forget a man standing behind you. When I'm sure Kilgore, Texas wasn't exactly a place swarming with black people. So he may have, he may have stood out to her, stood out to her. They then left the restaurant, meaning the two black guys, because remember the two black guys came in. And hid in the back until it closed. Joey Johnson went out the back door to take out the trash at some point in time in the night. And that's when Darnell and Romeo approached him with guns. He tried to do something super heroic. So he grabbed a fry fryer. <laughs> I don't think that's the name. You know, like that little holder that people put frozen fries in, then dump in grease and pull up. Yeah, we've all seen it. He took one of those and was hitting Romeo with it, I guess. And because of Joey's attempt to fuck Romeo up, in a sense, he started bleeding. And that's how his DNA was able to get on the scene as well. Mary Tyler was hit in the mouth sometime during the struggle, probably with the butt of a gun. Um, and somehow Hartsfield was also cut. We don't know exactly how that went about or how that happened, but he was bleeding, leaving his DNA at the scene. So a bleeding Mary Tyler was escorted to the back of the restaurant where she bled onto the file, filing cabinet. And I'll have pictures of like most of this stuff, you guys, on the Instagram. 
at Black True Crime Podcast. <laughs> they took the money and then piled all five victims into the back of a white van, and they drove 14.2 miles out of town to that oil, like, oil rig place. They forced everyone out of the car, walked them into the field, like more into onto the grounds, and told them all to lay down flat on the ground. They then started to shoot them. I don't know whether the rape of Miss Opie and her murder happened before these other murders or at the same time or after, I don't know, but we do know that she was sexually like assaulted in that aggressive, horrible, violating way and then shot as well. In the end of this clown's short ass trial, because I'm like, okay, I'm only saying clown right now because if you admitted that you had been to the KFC before, I understand how it goes with black people. And like, you know, back in those times, things didn't really go our ways, but it's like just tell the truth. You know what I'm saying? I'd rather face life in prison with the truth and not a lie because lies, you know, they always fall apart in the end. So the trial was really short. I think it only lasted a month. The jury found him guilty of aggravated perjury and he was sentenced to life in jail for this crime. He said, by the looks of his face and the people that saw him, including the families, they said he didn't give a damn. So there's that. There's that. Even I feel like an innocent man would show some type of like, oh my God, my life is over. But hey, you be the judge, I guess. So less than a month after Hartsfield's perjury conviction, They charged his ass with the five murders and also his cousin. So two decades after the killings, 20 years of suffering for the families, no fucking closure. I mean, partly no idea who the fuck committed these crimes. And they finally have, I guess, somewhere to land, a foot to stand on, an idea, a trial, a conviction, an indictment, not a conviction, an indictment, they have something to finally work with. So Texas Attorney General Greg Abbott announced the indictments of Pinkerton and Hartsfield on November 17, 2005. They were charged with five capital murder counts apiece. Today, a Russ County grand jury handed down 10 capital murder indictments. Five each against Darnell Hartsfield and Romeo Pinkerton. And as we know already, Pinkerton and Hartsfield were already in jail serving time for other charges. And that is the conclusion of part one on this case. So, yeah, you guys, sorry to kind of throw it on you, but hey, isn't that how you like it? Just kidding. Excuse that. Um... <laughs> I hope you guys liked this one. Tune in for the next one for the conclusion of this case. Now it's time for IG shoutouts. Ready, set, go. Number one, at genuine underscore 
chit chat. Hi, you guys. Thanks for joining me. Number two, Nirobe. Not going to even try to pronounce that again. I'm going to spell it N I R O B underscore underscore double P, as in two P's. Hey there. Difficult name, but I'm just happy you're here. Number three, Margot underscore Tyndall. Hey, girl. I love your puppy and your AV. He's super cute. Or she. Who knows? You do. Um, <laughs> message me and let me know. Number four, Lizka42. Hi, lady. Beautiful lady. How are you doing today? You can't answer me, but thanks for the follow. Anyway, number five, his squishy bitch. Hey, girl. <laughs> I love your handle. Welcome. Number six. Yeah. One Eye Open Podcast. They are a podcast too, and they focus on conspiracies, hauntings, and murders. So check them out. Hey guys, thanks for following me, us, Black True Crime. Number seven, at Killer Rabbit Pod. That's another podcast. Hey, podcast fam. Thanks for the follow. Number eight, Kia220. Hello and welcome. Number nine, Krima2314. Hey there. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Me. <laughs> and number 10, Justine underscore Lauren. Hello, hello. Thank you to all of you for following our Instagram page. We did reach the 120. I'm super happy about that. And I will be shouting out all of the 120. I promise, promise, promise. I do 10 each episode. So listen out in the next episode and previous episodes to see if I've mentioned you already or to see if you're still on my list. So once again, you guys, thank you so much for coming and listening. I hope you had an amazing time here at Black True Crime. And I will see you guys next time. You have a right to kill me. I have a right to do that. But you have no right to judge me.